creating a podcast is this wonderful adventure. It begins with sort of identifying a guest, someone you'd love to have share their story, reaching out, connecting. And if they agree to do it, it's a, the period of the pre-interview where you get to know the person. And what I love is the ability to really personalize their life. Childhood, their journey through life, where they are today, their dreams for tomorrow. And if you're a fan of the show, you know that there's so many different people who have been part of this. Olympians who's trained for four years for that one shot at a gold medal. It's hard to describe because there's just so much happening in such a little amount of time. And you're like constantly doing something and meeting people and seeing different world-class athletes. And it, it's just a crazy experience. Harry Connick Jr., this incredible jazz musician, but couldn't find an audience until Harry met Sally came along and he went from an unknown to selling out stadiums. I got her songs and before you knew it, I had literally the whole album. So I sang their songs in my way and I had the whole album and that album came out and I went from selling 10 or 20,000 albums to millions of albums just in a matter of months. So, I mean, it completely turned my life upside down. If they asked me and then, of course, are the, the more tragic ones, the people that have had childhoods that no child should have. And somehow they found the resilience or the will to find a new path in life. And almost without exception, those people spend the rest of their life giving back. This show, I found, was a little more difficult to prepare for because I'm a father of two daughters. I just had my first grandchild. And this is a story of a father and a daughter. Their love for each other is something that any parent would dream of, and I think any child would hope for. But the tragedy of the story is it's got a finite amount of time. The father was dealt two cards you never want to be dealt together. One was the word cancer and one was the word pancreatic. And he knows that he's got his time on earth is not infinite. And a daughter who just wants to make the most of every moment. And I hope in listening to this story, it'll move you like it moves me to, to think about time in a way that it is finite, it is precious, it is fleeting, and it's something that really is the only currency that we have. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me today is Brian and Jennifer Irwin. If you grew up in Canada, you played with an urban toy, a hula hoop, a slinky, or a frisbee. My favorite, the Easy Bake Oven. I mean, come on, put a light bulb on, some baking mix, get to over-index with the icing and sprinkles because your parents aren't watching, and you make this feast. Urban Toys alone could be its own podcast. Started with a potato farmer and his wife, whose family was in that business, the agricultural business. And they went off on an adventure, starting with novelties, and they built one of the most exciting toy companies. But it was a toy company that it's tough to continue to grow because as your hit toys happen, big conglomerates might buy you out. Or what was the thing that everybody had have under the tree one year doesn't exist the next. And we'll learn a lot about that toy business and some of the wonderful things they did to make this Canadian business the success it was. But first, let's get a little bit into the life and relationship between Brian Irwin and his daughter, Jennifer Irwin, who calls herself Jen. Both of you, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi. 
Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thanks for having us. Brian, we're going to get into the story, the third son, Samuel, building on Irwin Toys. But I want to also get to the essence of this podcast, and that is to value time and treasure it. As we all know, it is an infinite. You got dealt some pretty tough news last fall. Just take us back to what happened and how that might have changed your perspective on everything. Last May of 2021, I started to have cramps. And I mentioned it to my wife. They weren't horrible, but they were annoying. She said, I'm going to the doctor. I'm going to speak to the doctor about it. I said, oh, don't worry about it. It's just uh, something I ate. But she did. She did call the doctor and she pressured him to have more tests taken. And they did. They did have those tests. And within days after the test, I got a call from the doctor's office saying, you better come in right away and please bring another pair of ears with you. Uh, it's quite serious. And Jen, my mother died of lung cancer many years ago. And I remember the phone call that she made to me to tell me the news. And I remember that call like it was yesterday. It felt like a part of my life because I adored my mom was racing away. How did you deal with the news when your your dad reached out to you and told you? Um, in, a, in a very similar way to you, um, it, it, it takes your breath away. And he was very upfront. Any child, even an adult child, uh, thinks that their, their parent is going to live forever. And this is especially true with my dad, because he's, he's the most alive, <laughs> full of zest person I know. Uh, he has this uh, irrepressible energy and uh, positivity. My friend always describes my dad. She says, if you walk in a room and you see that Brian Irwin's in that room, you don't leave that room because you know you'll be doing a limbo line in about five minutes or playing charades or murder in the dark or capture the flag, whatever it is, you're going to have a better time in that room than any other room. So, you know, that positivity just got channeled into what he's facing now. And so we've been, uh, my brother and my stepmom and his friends and family are following his lead. And uh, he's facing it with with uh, positivity and let's let's uh, get on with life. Brian, cancer isn't something easy to deal with and chemotherapy and everything they do to extend your life. When your daughter's coming out, when your friends are reaching out, does that lift your spirits? Does that give you a, a little bit more fight? Well, chemo and the endless needles that you have to uh, have is a very unpleasant um, process. It's very, it's a very busy process. Almost every day you're doing something. But when the doctor tells you that chemo is the only way you can stay alive, you realize that you got to be positive and look forward to your chemo as opposed to be terrified of it. Uh, you have to be positive because the people around you are hoping for you and praying for you. And you have to show them that you're positive. Uh, when I heard the word pancreatic cancer in the doctor's office, and he certainly didn't pull any punches when he told us about it, uh, I was shocked and just could not believe that this was happening. The prognosis is like really a death sentence. There is no cure. You become a statistic. You have to give as much positivity through this process as you can. Otherwise, you and all your support 
friends and family will uh, just give up and you can't give up. First thing Jennifer told me when I, when I told her about my situation, she said, Dad, we're going to beat it. We're going to do everything we can to beat this. Everything. Pretty hard to give up when you're, when your daughter has that kind of confidence in you. And uh, so that's how we approach each day now. You know, everybody, as certainly as I get older, I think other people get older, you know, we have that bucket list, things that we want to do and see. And clearly you're, there's a lot of holes in your bucket. Does it change what you think about in terms of time and where do you want to invest it, knowing that you are running out of it? Yes, I think so. Um, traveling and doing all the things that I would normally do if I didn't have this disease are out of the question. But every day I have, and every day that my family's around me and I'm talking to them or they're up here uh, in British Columbia with me, they make my struggle a family struggle. I'm not doing it on my own. I'm doing it with an enormous amount of friends and family that are, are hoping for me and praying for me. And I'm not gonna let them down by having negative thoughts. Dragon Ball Z action figures, Powerball Deluxe figures, and mini action sets are each sold separately from Irwin. With Turner and Panel. Turner and Panel. Deluxe building set, other sets sold separately. Batteries extra from Irwin. Zack Zacks, a new toy with every twist. Zack sets each sold separately. New from Irwin. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guests today are a father and daughter. Brian Irwin and a life and a career with his character and charisma. One of the most magnetic people. He attracts a crowd, a crowd that just wants to smile and be happy. And his daughter, a successful actor and writer. So, Brian, how did Irwin Toys come about? Well, my father came from a poor farming family. It was so poor that he had to quit school in the eighth grade in order to help uh, support the family. He started to work in the souvenir business for some other company in Toronto, was very successful doing that, and decided to go on his own. So in 1926, he and my mother, who was also in the farming business, decided to start Irwin Specialties, which was again a souvenir and gift company. And what were the specialties of Irwin Specialties? We had a huge line of products, but pennants that you put on the wall, nudie salt and pepper shakers was my personal favorite, <laughs> kept me company when I was on the road. Uh, each breast. Okay, had... they're still self explanatory, I think. They... <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. Everybody well. knows what a nudie salt and pepper shaker is. Okay. <laughs> we had birch bark canoes, and my dad would put those in the back of his trunk drive to his customers on Sunday night so that he'd be ready to see them first thing Monday morning and then he'd return on uh, Friday night. You know, my family's uh, surname is Chapman and it's an English name derived from cheap man. We were peddlers of cheap goods. We, we sold things from our wagon. And our, our famous thing wasn't a nudie salt and pepper shaker, but cheap books that were just a little spicy and rumor had it uh, always hidden under the pots and pans, but in great demand. 
how did your dad find customers? I mean, was it just heading out in the road and he kept going until the trunk was empty or did he start building relationships that made him more confident that he could buy more inventory? And, you know, that's a tough business to start, especially with somebody that left school at grade eight. Well, I think he, he knew his who his customers were before he left uh, home. He knew that uh, resorts and hotels sold souvenirs. He knew that there were toy stores, little toy stores. There were no uh, large chains or anything like that, but there were uh, neighborhood uh, toy stores that he could attract to buy his products. He would take orders. He would uh, deliver what he had in his uh, possession, but then would take orders and have it shipped. He had a small warehouse. And uh, and that's how he uh, started his business. And how did Irwin's specialties evolve into Irwin Toys? An example of some of the things that happened during the Irwin Specialties uh, era, my dad ended up negotiating for the rights to the, uh, the Blue Jays when they came to Canada. And so he got all the merchandise rights for Irwin Specialties. And we did millions of dollars uh, with that license. And then during the 50s, he started to represent U.S. toy companies, small companies and large companies that didn't have any representation in Canada. And he would say, hey, give me the exclusive rights to it in Canada. I'll put it on TV. We're, we were the first company to put TV commercials against uh, our product. And we because of that, we grew very, very quickly. I have to tell you that I could fire a lawsuit your way because I saw that commercial of the slinky going down the steps. My sister, older sister, got a slinky in her stocking. And after going down the steps a couple of times, I thought I could re-engineer it for more speed and it's lost its spring. So, I mean, it might be too late to return it. That was probably about 45 years ago, but I do remember that ad on television. I think I think he's asking for a credit. I'm asking for a credit. I'm asking for, I'll I'll give you my home address, but it has to be the metal one. When you guys turn that into a plastic slinky, I'm sorry. It just didn't have the same uh, panache. So you started also creating your own products though, right? Yes. And I always talk about, you know, a dog with fleas is a product that just doesn't work. But in your case, one of the products you had was a doll that was supposed to cry, but when it dropped to its knees, it's barked. Well, one year, we had two of the hottest toys that were available for children. Both of them actually sold out the first week in December. So children that didn't already have that gift uh, planned by their parents were going to be out of luck. One was a doll called Oopsie Daisy that had a chip in it. And when you push the button, it walked across the floor, fell down, and yelled, Mama, Mama, Mama. The other toy was the pound puppies that you adopted, and it would walk and bark while it was walking. Unfortunately, each of those two toys was produced in one factory, and they got the chips confused. This one girl... Uh, ended up opening her Oopsie Daisy doll Christmas morning, walk, pushed the button, it walked across, fell down, and barked. <laughs> barked and barked and barked. The mother said she was absolutely devastated, and she was in my office uh, the day after we opened, demanding another doll because this was going to d- drive her daughter crazy, and her crazy. On the other hand, somebody got... 
pound puppy that uh, walked across the floor and cried, Mama, Mama, Mama. <laughs> so I think there's two people in Canada walking around that are a little confused. Need some therapy. Need some therapy. And, and yeah. Jen, I mean, you were, they named a doll after you, but you, uh, you feel it didn't live up. To your potential and your, your image. <laughs> yeah, the Jenny doll, I think, had the distinction of being um, the worst-selling doll in history. I don't know how many you made, but um, it, uh, it too didn't... Many. Too many. <laughs> yeah, too many. Um, there, there was not much to the doll. She didn't cry mama or wet her pants or crawl or anything. She did nothing. She wore a red hat and it didn't sell through. Um, I like to think that there's some someone in in their mother's basement right now collecting my the Jenny dolls, and I'm hoping to buy it on eBay in a couple of years because we don't have one for some reason. We didn't save one. And the toy business, you know, we're talking about you know some fun things that happen and the runaway successes you had, but it's also a very stressful business because you're it's about hits. And your dad, as he was growing it, had a nervous breakdown. He grew the business too quickly. It was too much for one person to uh, manage. So he asked his two sons, who had just graduated from the university, to come in and help him. My father's doctor recommended to my mother that she had to spend more time helping him with the business and helping him get through this uh, disease. And he asked, is there some place you can send your seven-year-old um, uh, son, Brian, for a year in order for you to have that time with your husband. Luckily, uh, my dad had a cousin who was a engineer at a hydroelectric plant that was only accessible by railway once a week <laughs> north of Toronto. Sounds ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I was sent up there and it was quite um, difficult for me because I was isolated. But I did have a blast. So my dad, with all this help, was able to get over his nervous breakdown. Just remember that every year you have to come up with new toys. And every year you have to forecast what kids are going to want a year from now. It's a very stressful business. And Jen, I understand that it wasn't just the seven-year-old that was sent away. Mind you, that was for a year. Your dad did a stint of duty as a three-year-old at sleepover camp for two months. Tell us about that. Yeah. He had the distinction of being Ontario's youngest overnight camper. <laughs> he, again, he was sent away to another one of our cousins um, who happened to be the, um, the camp cook. And he was put in charge of my dad, so he would hang out uh, at his feet while he cooked camp food all day. Horrible. <laughs> I learned how to cook and, and taste horrible food for two months. It's not a bad skill. <laughs> this is Tony Chapman. You can subscribe to Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. You can always reach me at chatterthatmatters.ca. We come back, we learn more about Brian, and guess what? Another near-death experience involving a plane crash. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You're checking on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. This is RBC Daisy. She's just learning to 
This lonely and this lovable, one more is always welcome. Come sharing all our cuddling care and puppy love. Pound puppies. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest, Brian Irwin, and his wonderful and talented daughter, Jen. Brian, before we get into uh, the plane crash, you know, you developed this gift of gab, whether it's because you've been abandoned or you're seeking attention, but you've become so good at what you do. I hear that when you were in the selling side of Irwin Toys, you would think nothing about in front of a buyer acting out the part of a toddler. When I was presenting uh, toys to my customers, a lot of times you're looking at adults and they've forgotten what it was like to be a kid. So I would try to make some of my presentations as if I was a kid. I'd crawl on the floor. I'd I'd pretend I was breastfeeding a a doll. Um, Get that I, visual out of your head. Well, no, given the way you're mixing up <laughs> chips, it could have been breastfeeding a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so I attempted to become a child so that the buyer could see the reaction that a child would have on, on the product I was trying to sell. Besides Jen, did you have other children? Yes, we have one other child, Mark who is uh, living in Hong Kong. He's in the banking business. He has two daughters and a wife. And uh, I always kid both of my kids that the minute they had a chance, they moved as far away in the world as they could away from me, Jenny in in Los Angeles and and Mark in Hong Kong. But uh, they seem to be happy, and I guess it worked for all of us. And Jen, you're parents get divorced in the late 70s. And you tell me that at that point in your life, there wasn't much money, but it didn't matter because again, Brian, the entertainer, Brian, that magnetic force, found a way to keep life engaging and entertaining. Share with us a little bit of what was like with dad and also the, obviously the, at the same time going through the fact that your parents weren't together anymore. We ha- he always had this ability to make the most mundane moment fun. One very special thing he did um, was when um, my parents were divorcing and he was moving out, he and his uh, architect friend, Casey, decided to build a fully functioning stage in our in our basement. And we lived in a modest basement, our modest bungalow in North York. But there was a trap door, there was uh, lights, and <laughs> I think he was concerned that we would have, you know, we needed to be entertained. And that's exactly, you know, how we entertained ourselves. My brother and I would put on um, torturously long plays, like reenactments of television shows like Little House in the Prairie. Um, over and over again and cast the neighborhood kids and invite the neighborhood. And that's how we spend our weekends. I was pretty grateful to have that because I think it probably sparked my interest in, uh, in theater. And Brian, I'm, you know, we're moving because I want to get to other parts of the story, but you remarry and tell me about what I think is one of the most unbelievable stories I've ever heard and why we should believe it. And it involves you, your new wife, a plane crash in the Toronto Maple Leafs. My wife and I were, uh, in the British Virgin Islands on a sailboat and we got on the plane to come home and it was overloaded with shells and and people's luggage but we didn't know that we took off 27 passengers um, in a commercial fixed uh, uh, wing plane 
And we ended up landing in the ocean three quarters of a mile from the airport. I was the uh, first person off the plane because I was at right at the door, so I had to get the door open. We all survived, all 27 of us. It's less than a 5 or 10% chance that a plane landing in the ocean that you're not going to have casualties. So we, we certainly think we're very lucky, and there isn't a day goes by that I don't realize, but for the grace of God, uh, go I. It's a motivator for me because I know I've been given a, a, a real blessing. When we got home a day later, uh, we had no time to change clothes because of the time of day. And when we walked in, Jenny and, and Mark said, oh, tell us about your, your holiday. I say, I will, but not until after the Maple Leaf game. It's the second period, and I think they won that game. I didn't want to talk bad things when the Maple Leafs were playing. I thought they needed all the positivity I could give them. He, he waited until the game was over, and then he just turned uh, turned around and said, oh, by the way, I'm heading to bed. We got in a plane crash. And he was matted. I mean, they were all, they looked like, you know, drowned rats. They had just come out of the ocean. And another thing I know you're very proud of, Brian, was the time you spent on the board of Gilda, which is an amazing charity. What made that so special for you? Up till then, and even now, I have been blessed. Um, I don't have any regrets. I've had a wonderful life. And I felt that I should be giving back to my community. And so a friend of mine asked me if I would sit on the board of directors of Gilda Radner, named after the, the actress. It was a free of charge, nonprofit uh, community organization for people with cancer. How interesting that I now have that disease, but it was a meeting place. And I helped build, uh, or it helped to build uh, the emotional and social support as a supplement to the medical conditions that everybody has. I helped to raise the money to renovate the first uh, clubhouse that Gilda had in Toronto on, uh, I forget the street it was on now, but uh, that's right. It was the old fire hall, Second City City building. Speaking of Second City and Jen, where most kids grow up and the big party might be a Chuck E. Cheese or uh, going to the movies, your dad thought nothing about sending you to a nightclub called Second City and to learn improv. <laughs> how, how was that? I know. It was an, an unconventional choice um, to spend all our birthday parties <laughs> in the nightclub. But I think that's where I wanted to go. Um, I fell in love with improv at a very young age. So that's where we spent our birthday parties. And uh, who knew that I would eventually you know, do it for a living? And I, I joined uh, the main stage company there for a couple of years. But yeah, I was all our parties were behind the, the piano. You know, I wonder if our paths ever crossed because I had an agency called Communique. And for quite a while, we had the exclusive rights to uh, Second City and corporate conferences. And we used to, Bruce Peary and a bunch of people, we would bring, uh, and, and I, I love improv. I think it is one of the most intellectually stimulating to see people just feed off of other people. And, and that's wonderful. And the last question before we move into the next segment, Brian, age 60, you decide to start your own toy company. I had spent uh, 25 years with Irwin Toy. At that stage, both of my wife and I wanted to try something different. 
And so we ended up starting our own little company using uh, contacts that we had met over the last 25 years and went around the world looking for product. There's lots of product in lots of countries that never get to North America or, or in, in some cases to Europe. What I tried to do is match product with companies and license or sell the product to other people who could promote them and make them much bigger than they were before I got involved. An example, uh, one of my most successful products was Ketchup Bubble. I found this product being very successful in Taiwan and Hong Kong, but it had never reached North America. And I put it with a large company. They put it on TV and it ended up being the spring toy of the year for the world. Millions and millions of these Ketchup Bubbles magic bubbles that you blew up like normal bubbles but then they would stack in your hand and not break for 10 or 15 seconds so that was one of my more successful products spa certificate for a day of beauty linda this is great when are you going uh, you're welcome it's really more of a present for Judy. I mean, she's the one with a day-in, day-out front row seat for that. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guests are a father and daughter. Brian Irwin is battling pancreatic cancer. As we record this interview, his daughter Jennifer is in Vancouver with them. Brian, when you were at Ridley, I want to talk a bit about this, that you were talking about how wonderful you are as a human being, but I understand that some of the people that were, I would call authority in the schools that you were at, wouldn't necessarily describe you in the same high regard. They thought you were a bit of a pain. Well, during exams, uh, all the students were in a big hall. There'd be three or 400 of us. And everybody was very serious and worried about exams. So I brought in a whoopee cushion the very first day the exam started. As you do, as one does. And I sat on it, and of course the sound was all through the hall. And if I had just stopped there, the monitor couldn't see who it was. But because I got such a, a reaction, everybody laughing and hollering and I sat on it again, and uh, not too not too bright, but um, the master saw me, found me out, and took me to the dean's headmaster actually, and he asked me to bend over a chair, which is something I I was not used to, have not been asked since actually, and he caned me. I still got marks on on, on the back. Uh, where he was, uh, he hit me about eight or nine times. Oh, the good old days in education. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's right. So I got to ask you, was it worth the price? If you could go back in time, would you still sat the second time because you just love to laugh so much? I would hope that I would have learned, but probably not. <laughs> Jen, your dad knows you love comedy, books you in birthday parties at Second City. You talked about in your pre-interview how comedy runs through your family, but you're not just funny. You're at a level where you believe that you can channel that and be one of the few that can actually make it as a career. So you head off to LA to try your luck as an actor. Tell us what happened the night before your big shot. 
just so you understand the stakes, I had about two weeks left of money in my bank account and my um, my visa was about to expire. So I had I had to go back to Canada and I had uh, a couple of successful auditions um, for this network sitcom. I was lucky enough to make it to the network test, which is when you go in front of the, you know, the CEO of CBS and and it's a yes or a no. And we all know when you get on one of those shows, it's like winning a lottery ticket for an actor. So um, the day before my network test, I was parking my car and this uh, car pulled up beside me and a couple of guys yelled something. And, you know, being this polite Canadian, I got out of my car, stuck my head inside the window and said, I'm sorry, can I help you? Are you lost? And they said, uh, no, but we're, you know, give us, give us your, uh, give us your wallet. And they had the gun um, right up against my forehead. Of course, I remember not moving because you're in shock in those situations. And I, I didn't move. And they said, you take any longer, we're blowing your head off. So I gave them my wallet and they took off um, with $40, I think. <laughs> and my knees buckled. I, t- I uh, took to my bed the next day. I couldn't get out of bed. I was in a full panic attack, called my agent and said, there's no way I can I can go through with this. I, uh, I can't even get out of bed. So I called my dad and he said, okay, well, uh, just to go take a shower. Don't go to the audition, uh, just go take a shower. And once you're out of the shower, put your clothes on. Once you put your clothes on, get in the car. Once you're in the car, drive to CBS and uh, just do it one step at a time. And he said, look, you've been given a second chance. You have nothing to lose. You know, you're so nervous about these network executives. I don't think you were so kind in your description of them. <laughs> but you're, you're nervous in front of these guys. Why? You just you just survived and you're here to to see another day. So give it, give it your all. So I did. And some, for some reason, the, my nerves left and I booked the job and uh, I started working down there and was able to stay there down there now for 20 years. And Jen, tell me a little bit more about your career because I find it very challenging to get you to really talk about how successful you've been. So give us a sense of some of the the television shows my audience would have seen you on. Um, well, I I've I was on a sitcom called Still Standing for four years um, on CBS, and uh, I think the one thing I'm probably most recognized by, and it's usually by customs officials when I'm crossing the border for some reason. I don't know why, but they watch a lot of HBO. Is Eastbound and Down uh, with Danny McBride um, on HBO? On right? HBO, yeah. I do a lot of like guest stars. I was on Schitt's Creek. I played Catherine O'Hara's sister on that. And um, currently on the Goldbergs, as well as I was writing on the Goldbergs uh, as well um, as acting on it. So that was that was pretty challenging, but I'm happy I did it. Let's spend a bit of time on that because there's a lot of people now in the state of their career where they're going to have to make changes or they're motivated to make changes. Some people call it the great reset. I call it the great reality of this fast changing world. How was it for you to move from being, you know, in front of the spotlight to writing the words that somebody else would act out? Uh, not easy, quite frankly. Uh, much more difficult than you would think, even though it's in the same sort of similar job. Uh, you'll have to look at the bigger picture. You know, actors come on set and they're focused solely on their small part or their big part. But the the writer has to kind of service all the characters and the larger arc. You know, it's a long job. You're there. The hours are really hard. But I loved it. I loved it on, on on many levels. And what's next for you? Well, I'm sort of phasing into writing a little more. I have um, a project with my writing partner in development at 20th um, Century Fox right now. And it's a comedy based in Canada, uh, drawing from my personal experience. 
um, although it's a murder mystery, which I don't have that personal experience from. Uh, and a couple of other projects that I'm working on and uh, with other people and in development. And um, so I'm, I'm pretty busy right now. And Brian, you talk quite openly how cancer is a full-time job, but when you have a window, when you're feeling better and you're, how do you spend your time? Well, I look upon this type of disease. It's obviously uh, very serious, but it does have an advantage to other diseases like heart attack or an accident. I'm given a certain amount of time that I, I, I should be able to survive with uh, chemo. That's enough time that I can reach out to my family, to my friends, and just tell them how much I love them all, enjoy talking about our our past together. We've had, I've had a great life and I've had it with friends and family. And so I can say goodbye to them like a lot of people can't. I spend time thanking my friends for making my life so, so happy. And they're all on my side. And so we're fighting this together. You know, Brian and Jen, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. I think the first one would just really be this magnetic core your dad has. And I love what you said, you know, when he was in a room, that's the room he didn't want to leave. And when he talks about it, it's never about him. It's about life and family and love and humor and making fun of yourself and playing a game of charades or just positive, innocent, lovely energy. And the second thing is just the gratitude. You're not angry, you're not, you're using this as something that you're gonna value the time you have left to tell people how much you value them. And that humility and grace is something that I just find so magical and I wish that we could bottle it. And finally, and the love that you two have for each other, I think every parent aspires to have what you have and I think every child aspires to have what you have, Jen, and that is this incredible bond of love and playfulness. So I will value my time in a much different way because I had the honor of talking to you too. So thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you so much. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.